up with me this morning to Luke chapter 12. We've read this text a minute ago and now we will expound upon it. We will work through this final part of the chapter. So if you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, uh, here's the title. The title of the message is Don't Wait. It's a message this morning about urgency and a sense of urgency. There's a sense of urgency upon the part of the believer that God has come and has brought judgment. This isn't a time to play. This isn't a time to pretend or have make-believe church and pretend as if everything is going to just carry on like the predictions of Scripture aren't real. So many churches, unfortunately, have chosen that path And they make out the times to be just uh, casual. Things are just continuing as they have been and we shouldn't expect any difference. Well, the scripture tends to disagree with that thinking. In fact, it directly opposes that and teaches us that there should be a sense of urgency within the gospel, within our lives to live faithful now. For those who are not believers, there is a warning with urgency, a warning that time is running out. Things will not always continue as they are. You, one of two things, you are either getting closer through age to meet God or you're getting closer to the time in which he's coming back and will meet you. And there is a sense of urgency, and really when you think about it, both of those things are happening simultaneously as we are coming to God. He is coming to us. And so we see in this message a sense of urgency. It's an urgency upon us all. I don't want to presume that every person in this congregation this morning is a believer. I would venture to say that there are a number with us today who are not people of faith. Maybe they're okay with Christianity or seem to be lackadaisical with religious things. And so it's somewhat of a casual thing to come to church. But regardless, there is a sense of urgency upon us all in this moment and in this time. By way of introduction, let me bring your minds for just a moment into the context of thinking about predictions. Because it's something that we don't think about, but it is something that we live by. You and I live according to predictions. If you're a business person, or you are financially savvy when it comes to economics and politics and those sorts of things, the stock market, We exist, or you live, by predictions. Investors observe a number of factors that either drive the stock market up or drive it down. Investors will look at politics and policies, and they will base their decisions on what they predict a political figure may do, a president or a senator or a governor. 
And so investors are more or less considering the times or considering the things that are going on to help them make a decision. They will pull their money away from investments if they predict that it will be a bad investment. Investors also observe the cultural algorithms and make predictions to invest on what the populace thinks. Maybe perhaps social media like Twitter or like uh, Instagram or Facebook. Investors look at the populace and the consumers and the things that are driving our culture and they invest based on those things as well. So it's all about predictions, whether it's with Bitcoin, social media, gold and silver. There are algorithms and ways of making these predictions. But even consumers, if you're not an investor, say none of that applies to me. Well, a consumer also makes predictions on whether to buy or build a house. They base that upon what's going on in the economy, interest rates, inflation, those types of things. Or what kind of car to buy or whether or not to go on vacation. Again, these, these are predictions based on available knowledge and they're making the best educated guesses. We make predictions on where to buy a house. Perhaps we look at an area that's growing and we see a particular place and we see that's a good place to build because I can secure my investment there. We make predictions on whether or not to go to the park on the weather. And so we look at the weather and we say, well, maybe we should not plan tomorrow to do this because it may rain, or I'm going to mow today because it may rain tomorrow. And if the weather predicts ice or snow, that predicts for us, that makes a decision for us to go to the grocery store and buy up all the eggs and bread and milk. The market predicts a spike in crude oil. We go to the gas stations and fill up our vehicles and we fill up our gas cans and we do all of this on the basis of prediction. Predictions are calculated guesses. Likely forecasts based on available and acquired data. But then there's truth. And yet truth is totally different from a prediction in these contexts. Truth is reality. And reality defies predictions. Example you can go to your weather app and see that there is a 0% chance of rain and you can make decisions based on that forecast only to experience the worst rainstorm in history. The truth is what is obvious. A while back I was outside and storm clouds rolled in, wind began to blow, the temperature cooled down and it began to rain. I went inside and pulled up my weather app and it says there is a 10% chance that it will rain today. And I was like, no, it is a 100% chance it will rain today. I'm looking at it. In these contexts, predictions are simple guesses. But the Bible also makes predictions and we must be careful here not to understand the predictions that I've just spoken to you about and the predictions that the Bible makes. Two totally different things. For when the Bible makes a prediction, the Bible is actually giving a prophetic utterance. These are the words of God that God has said will happen. 
Therefore, it is a 100% chance that whatever the Bible predicts will happen. It's not the same as our educated guesses and the best guess, although Christianity gets accused of this quite often. Well, that's your opinion. That's what you think happens. But what I think happens is on the basis of authority, not me, it's not my opinion that makes it a reality. It's what I am basing that on. It's objective, not subjective. I don't have a subjective faith. I have an objective faith. It is in something that is real. And so, we see that the predictions of the Bible are different than the predictions of the weather or the economy. Nobody predicted Russia would invade Ukraine like it did. And all of a sudden, plans can change like that. First thing I want to show you here is the coming of Jesus was predicted. It was prophesied from Scripture. Again, not a likelihood that it would happen, but that it would happen. In the Old Testament, as you read and you study, you have to understand that you're reading and studying documents written in a different language, Hebrew versus the New Testament that was written in Greek, in a different period, in a different era, at different places of time. Some documents are several hundred years old, some are several thousand years old. And so these were older documents. That's why it's called the Older Testament, as what I prefer, as opposed to the Old Testament, as if it sounds like it's something outdated. It's just older. And in the Old Testament, and the older or the Older Testament, there are predictions about the coming of a Messiah, one that would come who would save people from their sins. And history understands something very special about Jesus Christ. He is undeniable. Jesus has divided the ages, A.D. versus B.C., Jesus divided the ages. Even time itself is centered on the very person of Christ. But Christ did something more than to divide the ages. He fulfilled all of those Old Testament predictions. Everything that was said about the coming of Messiah came true in Jesus. There are some 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And whenever we look into history to find a person to match that description, it only rests upon one, and that is Jesus Christ. For example, the Old Testament tells us that the Savior will be born of a virgin. In the New Testament, we see Jesus was born of a virgin. In the Old Testament, we learn that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And in the New Testament, we find that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the Old Testament, we learn that there would be a front runner, someone who would preclude or, or, or be a prelude to Christ's coming, and that was John the Baptist. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus had a front runner, and his name was John the Baptist. The Old Testament, the Bible says that the Savior would be gentle, not coming harshly, but would, become, would come in meekness. And we see that He come in absolute meekness. 
In the Old Testament, see that the Savior would speak in parables. And in Jesus, we see that He speaks in many parables. In the Old Testament, it says that the Savior would come and would heal the deaf, the blind, and cause the lame to walk. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus calls the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, and even the dead to raise from the dead to life. There are intricate details about the Messiah's death, his gruesome death, the details of his beating, even the gambling over the tearing and parting of his garments. And in the New Testament, we see it is exactly how it happened. In the Older Testament, the Savior, uh, it says that the Savior would have a disciple who would betray him. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus was betrayed by some of his own In the Old Testament, the Savior, it says, would die with the wicked, and we see that Jesus died in between two criminals. In the Old Testament, it says that the Savior would live among the Jews, and they would reject Him. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus came to the Jews, and they are the ones who rejected Him. In the Older Testament, it says that the Savior would rise from the dead three days later, and hallelujah, in the New Testament, we see after Jesus died, three days later, He rose from the grave. In the Old Testament, it says that Jesus would be a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. He would cause people to be divided. And this is exactly what we see in Christ. Bear in mind, those predictions about all of these things, and those are just a few. I said there were over 300. We can't go over all of them. Those are just to name a few. And we see that they were all fulfilled in Christ. Undeniable evidence if one person could even fulfill half of those things, it would be remarkable. But Jesus fulfilled them all. In fact, Jesus was on trial for his life just before he was about to go to the cross and he was being basically on trial before one of the magistrates named Pilate, a Roman magistrate. And it says that Pilate said to him in John 18, 37, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king, but for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world, to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus said to Pilate that he came to reveal, to be the fullness of the revelation of all that has been spoken, all that has been prophesied about. He said, I came to bear witness of that truth. Therefore, presenting a challenge to both Pilate and to every one of us to search and to see for yourself. Look at the evidence. And so I resolve by way of conviction, by His Holy Spirit, and the convincing of the Holy Scriptures that Jesus is the Savior who was predicted in history. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is the God of the New Testament. And hallelujah, Jesus is God today. Not only do we see that His coming was predictable, it was purposeful. The night that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there were shepherds. They were watching their sheep. And the Bible tells us that a host of angels appeared and they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Don't ever leave that part out. 
peace among those with whom He is pleased. The Savior, yes, indeed, has come to bring peace qualified with those with whom He is pleased. When a person experiences the salvation of the Lord, there is tremendous peace that comes from trusting in Christ. To know that you are forgiven of your sins, to know that you have been granted eternal life, there is peace of knowing that you are known by the Father. But then when we get to Luke 12, we hear a different tone and we are shocked. Starting in verse 49, so not only do we see that He has come to give peace to those with whom He is pleased, He says here, I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. What does this mean? When Jesus says that I come to cast fire on the earth, well, that means judgment. He has come to bring judgment to the earth. There is judgment that has been passed. There is a judgment that has come with Christ. There is a future judgment, but there is a present judgment. And so fire on earth is judgment. Jesus says something very shocking also, not only that, but he says, I wish that it were already kindled. In other words, I wish that judgment had already found its completion. You see, there will be a day in the future in which fire will consume the earth. There will be an all-encompassing judgment, a final judgment upon this earth. In fact, we see a contrast in Genesis. God judged the earth with water. And in the end, he will judge the earth with fire. The final judgment is that God will bring the earth to ruin. But make no mistake, God is not saying that he is finding delight in the ruin. In the final ruin, no, he is finding delight in the final redemption. You see, he's coming to restore and to set everything right. And so he's saying, I wish that it had been, it has already been completed. But before this final judgment comes, there is again that first coming of judgment. And so he says here something very interesting. He says that he has a baptism to be baptized with. And this isn't talking about the baptism of John. It's not even talking about water baptism. He's talking about identity. Whenever you read in the Bible and you see baptism, you need to know it always means identity. Always means identity. And so what he is talking about here is the identity that comes through the cross in which he identified with sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And on the cross, Jesus was identifying with sinners by taking upon himself one who never knew sin, taking upon himself the sins of the world. And the cross had not yet happened when Jesus said that. He knew it was coming. And so he said this, he says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You remember the night before Jesus went to the cross 
Remember him going to the garden to pray? And remember it said that as he prayed, he prayed so hard that he began to drop from his, his flesh droplets of blood. It was so intense. And he said, oh my God, if it be your will, please let this cup pass from me. Don't ever get the idea that this was the weakness of Christ's flesh, that he was afraid to die. No, it was the holiness of who he was as God that did not want to taste sin. That was what was in the cup. He didn't want to drink sin. It's detestable to God. You'll never understand how bad sin is until you understand how holy God is. Perfect and pure in righteousness, unlike any judge on earth or any one of us. So the cross was an act of judgment. And this is precisely why Jesus asked the question, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Good question, good uh, interesting statement, but let me, let me put it in perspective. How in the world can the nicest, the most compassionate, gracious, and generous person who ever walked the face of the earth bring division? Because that's exactly who we see in Christ. This meek and gentle, lowly person. And I've thought a lot about that question. I've surmised that there are probably several answers that one could answer that question with. But I believe one question or one answer stands above the rest for that question. How can the most gracious, gentle, loving, tender person who have ever walked the face of the earth bring division? Because in Christ, He leaves no room for you to stay neutral. He leaves no room for you to straddle the fence. He leaves absolutely no room for you to say, I think I'll have some of God and some of the world. But in Christ, you're either for Him or you are against Him. That is why so many are divided on Christ. You cannot remain neutral. Let me tell you something. You can't, you can't listen to a sermon like this and just leave it. You will make a decision one way or the other to receive or to reject on the basis of what God has revealed. R.C. Sproul says it like this. Jesus' appearance in the flesh, His, His coming, His incarnation, brought a crisis to mankind. For everyone who encounters Christ is called upon either to stand with Him or against, it, against Him. And Jesus is so divided, the Scriptures show us that even families will divide over Him. Look at what it says, verse 52. For from now on... By the way, this was a prediction and we see for 2,000 years it's been true from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. For 2,000 years, we have been observing families who have split over Christ. Let me just give you an example. Because some of us here in the deep south have a hard time with this. We feel removed because we are insulated through cultural Christianity here. Let me give you an example. Young 
girl just graduates high school and goes off to college. And on college, she finds on college a Baptist student university or or, or union, and she joins that. And she just is curious because she grew up in an atheistic home. And so she begins to inquire and just wants to know, but she hears the gospel and her heart is penetrated and she understands her need for Savior and she repents of her sin, puts her faith in Christ. Then she goes home and she tells her mother who is a professor of psychology, who's an atheist, and her father, who's a professor of science, who is an atheist, that she is now a follower of Christ. And you can see their disdain and disapproval, and they vehemently together look at her and say, if you do not renounce this faith in Christ, we will cut you off. You are a disgrace to our family. Could anybody be so cruel every single day? In fact, let's get outside of the context of our insulated America and understand the extremities of this because in Matthew's gospel, he records it this way, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated for all for, all for my name's sake. Go to a country that is predominantly Islam or Hindu or any other cultural religion that has the stronghold in their communities and live the same way you do here, right here in the U.S., there and see where that gets you. It will get you in the ground. You'll be killed. It happens every day. And every single day there are Muslim teenagers who go out into the marketplace and there's a missionary that's been sent from a church, a BMA church. And they hear the gospel and they trust in Christ and they go home only to be threatened with death. I remember in seminary, uh, they had brought a man from Turkey. They had to smuggle him out of the country because he had found the gospel, he had discovered the gospel, and through the gospel he trusted in Christ. And whenever he realized he had to identify with Christ with baptism, his family not only disowned him, they put a hit on his head, and they had to usher usher him out. And whenever they had to spend a year in underground just to get his documents so he could get here to the U.S., and whenever he gets here, he gets to go and meet other believers, and they brought him in and a question was asked to him, you've lost everything. You've lost your family. You lost the support of your community. Was it worth it? And he said, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change one thing. Because Christ is the truth. He is everything. So yes, these things happen. You will either receive Christ to save or you reject Him altogether. Because of our inability to remain neutral with Christ, there will be a continuation of hatred against those who trust in Him. By the way, it's one-sided. 
If you are a Christian family and your child denies the Christian faith, you do not put a hit out on their head. That is against Christian teachings. So if you do, you do that only in your flesh, not because Christ said to. And so, it's one-sided. But then Jesus turns his attention back to the crowds, those who were not following in him, or following him, uh, those who are not trusting in him as the Messiah. In verse 44 to 56, he says, and also he said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present times? What Jesus is doing is calling out the crowd for their rejection of him. And he says, hey, you can predict the weather. You have the capability, the mental faculty to be able to look at the weather. You can look at the clouds coming in and you can know it is going to rain and it happens. You can feel the south wind blow and you know that a scorching heat is coming and it happens. So they have the mental faculties to predict the weather based on signs, and this is in contrast to their inability to recognize all of the predictions, all of the promises, and all of the fulfilled signs that are in Christ. He says, I am standing right in front of you, the fulfillment of every single Old Testament prophecy, and you can't discern me? What an indictment against the Jews. Because if you remember, this was a Jewish crowd. These were the ones that the Old Testament was written to. It's why it was written in Hebrew. It was to the Hebrew people. The law was given to the Jews. The promises were given to the Jews. The prophets were given to the Jews. And even beyond the scripture, where did Jesus show up? Right smack dab in the middle of the Jews. And who did he perform miracles to? The Jews. Who did he cause the blind to see? The Jews. Over and over and over, he gave them sign after sign after sign, and they still refused to recognize and confess Jesus as the promised Savior. This is why Jesus calls them hypocrites. You say you're the people of God? And yet... All that God has done by, all that I've done by revealing these things to you, you have rejected them. You've killed the prophets. This was due, why? Because of the unwillingness of their hearts. This was a hard issue. It wasn't their ability, inability to reason. Their hearts were darkened. They had no will in them, no desire for a savior. They had no desire to know the truth. Luke chapter 13, 34 says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. In other words, my people. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Time and time again, prophets were sent to the people of God to warn them, but they rejected this message of Jesus over and over. And why did they reject? Because of the darkness of their hearts. They were unwilling. They, folks, did not want to know the truth. 
They did not want to know the promises of God. They only wanted the blessings. That's the only reason they were even following Jesus. Because they wanted something from Him. They just didn't want Him. So we have this idea. I think it's, a, it's an awful idea within Christianity today, particularly in the West. It's this awful idea that at the heart of every single individual, they're really good people. At the heart of every single person, they really do want to know Christ. They really do want to know the truth. May I submit to you that is completely contrary to everything Scripture says. Man is evil and continually evil. We are totally depraved, completely dead in our sins and trespasses. There's nobody seeking the Lord or the world in the flesh. They're not seeking the Lord. They are unwilling. All these all the signs, everything. And what God is showing you is the willpower of man, the depravity of man. God can do all of these things and man will still reject Him. And this is why Jesus gives us sign after sign after sign. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 19. He says, the wrath of God, the judgment of God comes from heaven, is revealed from heaven. He's talking about what has been revealed, what has been divinely revealed in the text, in scriptures. But also, even nature, notice what he says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why do people reject the truth? Because of their wickedness. They don't want to acknowledge it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has showed it to them. No one will ever be able to stand in the presence of God and say, well, God, you just didn't give me enough proof. God has revealed His power and judgment in the world. That's what He says. There's the wrath of God revealed from heaven. The world is not blind to earthquakes and tornadoes, ravaging floods and wildfires. Death is rampant. We know something's wrong. We just refuse to acknowledge what it is. The Word of God is preached all over the world and in some places, such as here in the U.S. of A., it is preached all over the internet, the TV, the radio, and nearly every street corner in this country. And yet, America is growing more and more and more anti-God. Why? It isn't because of not enough opportunity, not enough availability to hear. It is the depths of depravity of man's heart. He is unwilling. Regardless of all the signs, Christ is rejected. No matter the quality or the quantity of the signs that are available, man continues to reject God. Let me show you another sign, because we miss these. The obvious ones are the most difficult for many people to see. Let me just say it like this. In every single nation of the world, there is some form of governance. It doesn't matter how civilized or uncivilized they are. There is some form of governance. There is a law that every single nation or every single people group or every single tribe abides by. They're not all the same. They're different. But this shows us that there is within the heart of man a cognitive understanding of right and wrong. Where does that come from? Where does a sense of moral obligation come from? That we are morally obligated to one another. 
Let me ask you another question. Would you like to live in a world where it's okay to murder? Even in a world in which you live that has laws against murder, you still lock your doors at night. Laws cannot govern morality. It's within the heart of man to be evil. They can constrain it. But where does this idea of right and wrong even come from? Where does morality come from? Where does governance and judgment come from? It comes from the very, um, the very mind of God. You were created in the imago Dei, the image of God. And because of that, you know there is a sense of right and wrong. That's why it's written up on the conscience of man. That's why it's undeniable. You know there is a form of judgment. Every single day of the week, there will be courts that will assemble and there will be people ushered into the courtroom and they will stand before a judge and the judge will give them his judgment. Understand something about that judge. That judge is not perfect. That judge will render judgments based on his emotions, based on how he got up that morning, based on how he's feeling. Literally, I've said, I have, I have been in courtrooms and I've heard him say, well, I'm in a good mood today, y'all. Meaning, my judgments are going to be a little bit different than they were yesterday or the day after. But we understand this idea of judgment, do we not? But with God, he's just. And what he's saying here is that there is a final judgment. There is a time in which all will stand in front of the judge who is righteous, who is holy in all of his ways, who's not having a good day today and a bad day tomorrow. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he will declare penalty upon those who stand in front of him, no matter how bad of a person you think you are. That's irrelevant of standing in front of this judge. It will be on the basis of whether or not you trusted in his dear son. Or whether you rejected him. And this is why we, how he concludes this section. The urgency for all of us to understand what is going on. There is a coming judgment. He says this, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? You know how to judge. You understand judgment. You understand the laws. You understand court. You understand these things. So as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, before you ever get in front of the magistrate, before you get, before you get to the judge, make every effort you can to settle with him on the way. Don't wait before that final judgment. Don't wait before the judge to hand down his judgment. Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penalty. And what he is saying is simple. He is saying this to the crowd, to those who are unregenerate, to those who are not of the faith in Christ. He is saying you are on your way being led right now to the final judgment. Make amends now. Do not wait, for when you wait to the final judgment, it will be too late. And take no comfort in the last part of this verse, which says that you will spend your time until you've paid every last penny. Because what Jesus does something here is very unique. He actually provides something here to show us exactly how it is impossible. For when you have been stripped of everything, you have nothing to pay. There's no way to pay this penalty. It's already been paid 
but it's been paid before the final judgment, and it's only in Christ. He is the one who has paid that price. He is the one who has come. He is the one who is the fulfillment of all these predictions. He is the one that it's all been about and that it always will be about. And he is saying, don't wait. Don't wait. There's a sense of urgency. Today is the day of salvation. And therefore, I say to you, for those who may be hearing this sermon this morning, you know in your heart, my, oh my. If I died right now, I would die without Christ. And I would die in my sins. And I would not be able to plead my case before God. For I will have no case. For I had every opportunity. I listened to the sermons. I've been to church. Been to church my whole life. But I know if I stood before God today, I would stand before Him guilty and I would be declared guilty by God. If that's you, don't wait. Don't wait. Put your trust in Christ right now. For those of you who have put your trust in Christ, there's an urgency for us to live and to be obedient and to be faithful and to share the gospel. Knowing that God has not come to just bring peace. This isn't playtime. This is serious business. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we bring this sermon in chapter 12 to a conclusion, we understand that it's not upon us today to just casually receive what we've heard, but to take serious the Word of God and to take serious the things that you have revealed and the things that you have showed us Lord, I pray for those who have come this morning and who have heard and they have been pricked in their hearts about their need for Christ. I pray that they would follow in that conviction by trusting in the Lord, by repenting and giving their lives for your service. Regardless of what others would think, regardless of what even going home and telling their family what they would say or what their friends might think. God, I pray that you would just Help us to stand on the truth regardless of the cost. And to also know that the urgency is now. We're not promised tomorrow. And you could come and bring a final judgment at any moment. And I pray these things, Father, that you get glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.